0: Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories at the Vatican. This week, we cover the Pope's address to the Mediterranean bishops and the first meeting between the Vatican and China's foreign ministers in 70 years. We'll also update you on revelations of sexual abuse by Jean Vanier and the advancement of Rutilio Grande's canonization cause. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Morning from New York, Jerry.
1: Good afternoon from sunny Rome, Colleen. But we're expecting rain and perhaps cold weather in the rest of the week.
0: Uh, happy Mardi Gras, also.
1: Yes, it's Mardi Gras down here, but not much festivities right now as people are a little uh, uncertain as what's going to happen.
0: Mm, that makes sense.
1: But we'll talk about that later.
0: Yes. So, for our first story, we wanted to talk about uh, Pope Francis visited Bari this weekend. It's a city in southern Italy, and he spoke to bishops from around the Mediterranean. This was a diverse group that included bishops from all around the Mediterranean, so North Africa, Europe, the Middle East. Um, And... He made some strong points in here, especially about migration. So we wanted to talk about that this week. Uh, Jerry, the first thing that I think we should talk about is that Francis gave what was interpreted as his first response to Donald Trump's Israel-Palestine plan. Um, Do you want to talk about what he said?
1: Well, yes, he he said, we can't overlook the still unresolved conflict between Israeli and Palestinians. We're talking about a conflict that's gone back more than 70 years, and which, uh, in the words of one former Vatican foreign minister, is the mother of all conflicts in the Middle East. So Francis says, we can't overlook this and the danger of inequitable solutions, very significant, is effectively labeling the Trump proposal without naming it as an inequitable solution. And most observers and most analysts of the Israeli-Palestinian situation would agree with the Pope.
0: Right. That's what a lot of commentators have said uh, in terms of they they think that this plan uh, very much favors the concerns of the Israelis over the Palestinians.
1: It's very one-sided. And you, you cannot make peace if you don't listen to both sides. And if it, from the start you put down conditions that make it impossible for the, or very difficult for the other side to join in, uh, uh, you're not seen as an honest broker. And Francis uh, points and he says, you know, inequitable solutions, if you push ahead with this, basically, it's a prelude to new crisis. All you have to do is scan the papers. The day or two after the proposal presented by Trump and at his side, the Israeli Prime Minister, you will see there's hardly one, let's say, moderate analysis that doesn't say this is not a good way ahead. This is in contrast to the internationally agreed, voted on position of the United Nations, not just one nation, but the United Nations General Assembly.
0: Now, this talk that Francis gave in Bari addressed many more conflicts than just the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? He also spoke about Syria.
1: Yes, and uh, uh, at the end of mass, he, he spoke about Syria, where the fighting was going on in the north and eastern part of the country. And after mass, he, he appealed to the international community to take action because this has been going on since two thousand and eleven. And so many of the people of the country have left. The Christian population has been diminished. The United States has pulled back. Russia is playing a role. Iran is playing a role. It's like a a wild jungle in terms of who's fighting whom and when. It is difficult to see what the future is in this situation. There's also Lebanon. Lebanon is in a very difficult situation. And then, much nearer to where the Pope was speaking, he was in Bari, southern Italy, right across the sea, you had Libya, a fighting going on there. And there's instability in Tunis. So,
0: right, it's really all around the Mediterranean.
1: It's a tender box area. And uh, it takes little to explode it. And what we're seeing is the sale- selling of more arms. Francis came out strongly about this. He said that the buying, in other words, the supporting of the conflict by different actors because they're making money, Uh, it is taking resources, first of all financial, but also human resources, destroying the people, destroying their future. And this is not a horizon of peace. And this is, of course, and this goes to the second point, which you mentioned earlier, Colleen, the question of migrations. Why are people leaving? Why are people moving from the Middle East, from North Africa? Because of conflict.
0: Right. And uh, a big part of this speech was, you know... It was an address to the Mediterranean bishops, but it had a lot of relevance for other places as well, right? He addresses not only migration, but also the kind of populist movements that are springing up everywhere.
1: Yes, he's he says that it's certainly the first audience was the the Middle East and Europe. He's saying, you know, you have populist leaders coming forward, criticizing the, 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 the migrations, stirring up enmity and hate and where does that lead to? And we've seen the rise of anti-Semitism, but we've seen the rise of we've seen Islamophobia. and this is in Europe, but we also know that it's also in your own country where we're talking. And Francis said, it brings to mind the speeches we heard in the
0: 1930s. Right. This is close to home for Francis right? because his family was among the people who left Italy in the 30s when these populist movements were gaining traction.
1: Absolutely right. But many, many people in in Europe realized that we have echoes of what emerged in the 1920s and then the 1930s, and what led to the terrible disaster of the Second World War. And Francis is alerting people, and he's continually doing it. He's saying, let us be open and welcome to, the, to these brothers and sisters who are running away from conflict, war, poverty, and also the effect of climate change. He, he, he puts the three together, conflict, poverty, climate change.
0: But Jerry, it sounds a lot like, well, similar to the the issues that people are facing in the Amazon right now that we've spent so much time talking about, right? There's the issues of poverty, there's the conflicts between the kind of uh, industrializing influences versus the indigenous peoples. Um, I wonder, with that story, we talk so much about how it was a real risk for the bishops to take the side of the folks who are disenfranchised, who are marginalized, With these bishops from around the Mediterranean, is that the same case?
1: Yes, it it, it depends.
0: Right, it's a really diverse region.
1: If you're in Libya and you're losing your population, or if you're in Syria and the Christians are leaving, if you're in the Holy Land and the Christians are leaving, you you wonder, will there be any more Christians? But quite apart from the Christians, it's people. And what the Pope says, they're all God's children. And he stated very clearly last Sunday He said, the preaching of the gospel cannot be detached from the commitment to the common good. It impels us to act tirelessly as peacemakers. It's a very strong line.
0: If our listeners want to read your entire report on the Pope's speech at Bari, they can find that at americamagazine.org and in the show notes. Our second story is also about uh, peacemaking this week. Uh, On Friday, February the 14th, foreign ministers from China and the Holy See met for the first time in more than 70 years. This was kind of a quiet meeting. It happened during a security conference in Munich, but it marks a big milestone in Vatican-China relations. Um, Jerry, can you tell us about this meeting and why it was so significant?
1: Well, as you said, it's the first time that there's been, let's say, put it this way, a meeting where the foreign ministers of the two countries have actually sat down and talked s- substantial issues. It wasn't a photo op.
0: I have a question about this, actually, about the um, about the first time the foreign ministers are meeting. We've talked on the show before, but the Vatican-China deal, did they work that out without the foreign ministers meeting?
1: The Vatican-China deal, signed in September 2018, was signed at the level of the undersecretary, or you'd say the deputy foreign minister of both countries.
0: Okay. So this is one level up.
1: This is moving a step higher, and it's significant because up to now, the discussions, while the Chinese would send a team to the Vatican, the Vatican would send a team to China, it was always at that mid-level rank of uh, authority, You you know, the Vatican has often said, and Pope Francis has said very clearly several times, I'd love to go to China. They're not inviting him. But what they are doing in their own way is accepting to take the conversation at a higher level than it's been in 70 years and entering into issues, not just about the agreement that was made. That was one part of it, and they signaled very clearly they want to continue the dialogue over the appointment of bishops.
0: Right, that's what the Vatican-China deal mostly concerned.
1: It was the only issue on it.
0: Right. So let's. uh, What else did they talk about?
1: They talked uh, about uh, the situation of the human rights and of collaborating together for peace in the world. uh, This is very important. From I, I remember from the beginning, before ever they signed an agreement, the Vatican had always looked upon uh, the possibility of bigger issues with China than church issues, issues that concern the peace and well-being of the world. And this meeting in Munich, as it were, opened the door onto this. They are now talking bigger issues. For the church, of course, the appointment of bishops is a very big issue, but it's not the only issue. And as we said in our earlier conversation, you know, the preaching of the gospel cannot be detached from the commitment to the common good and impels us to act tirelessly as peacemakers. And this is exactly what one part of the conversation was was dealing with.
0: Right. I mean, Jerry, you've been very interested in China, and you followed it closely for a long time. Um, I, I wonder if you can just give us a sense of, we, we mentioned the 70 years number, which is big. You wrote in your story that this marks a significant warming between the sides. I was wondering if you could just you know, go go into uh, exactly how how big of a change this is. Yes.
1: Well, they've never really sat down together and discussed world peace and how they could work together for world peace. They also discussed human rights. Probably the Vatican raised it more than the China. But the fact that the Chinese last November said that the Chinese spokesman for the foreign ministry said that communication is now good between the Vatican and China. he he called it good communication. In other words, the two sides are talking. We see in this meeting just the tip of the iceberg. What we don't see is what the conversation that is going on below that level.
0: Yeah, because if you open up those higher levels of communication, right, there's I've seen people be critical of the kind of open door that Francis is extending to China because they say that he should be tougher on them for things like human rights abuses, like we've seen with the Uyghurs and other religious minorities in China. But your point is that, you know, there can be those conversations happening behind the scenes. We don't know.
1: Yes, but it's true that the Pope has got criticized, especially the Vatican for brokering this deal with China when you know that you've got one or two million Muslims in the West— really incarcerated or, or being de- de- denied the right. You've mm-hmm. had the Buddhists in, in, in uh, Tibet,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you have the, the, the Protestant churches, the, the home churches, the free churches under repression. You have also limitations, strong limitations on the Catholic Church, whereas I said, I think, before on this program, a, a, a young person in a family now cannot, if you're under 18, you cannot Participate in any kind of religious service or anything linked to religion. So the, the, the Vatican is well aware that you know this is not paradise. But Pope Francis, from the beginning, said we are not going to get anywhere with the with the politics of confrontation. We have to develop the culture of encounter and dialogue, and that's what he's done with by agreeing. Uh, on this provisional accord with the Chinese on the nomination of bishops, Mm -hmm. it was opening the door ever so slightly in the hope that the door gets opened more and that you build trust and confidence between the two sides because that was, at certain moments, almost non-existent.
0: Right. Jerry, this all also comes as China is dealing with the coronavirus outbreak. Um, And I think it's, it's interesting, you know, a lot of the religious organizations are trying to combat the virus. We talked a few weeks ago about the Vatican sending um, hundreds of thousands of masks for the prevention of coronavirus to Wuhan province. Um, but then there is also this tension between the, uh, you know, the the state, the government, and and the religious organizations.
1: Yes, I am happy you brought that, up, Colleen, because that was part in the statement after the meeting between the the Chinese foreign minister and the Vatican's foreign minister, in the statement from both sides, they mentioned this question of coronavirus and the solidarity. The Chinese appreciated that at this moment of crisis in their country, the the Pope, the Vatican, stepped out to offer some human support. And now, as you said, the church organizations, religious organizations, not just church ones, Buddhist organizations also within China are trying, doing their best to come to the assistance of the victims and those hit by the uh, coronavirus. Sometimes it's welcome, but the government, the authorities in many areas of China are very uneasy. They are uneasy about religion because it is not controlled by the party.
0: All right, Jerry, uh, our listeners can keep up to date on all of the developments between the Holy See and China that we know about, at least, uh, at AmericanMagazine.org, and I will link to your reporting in the show notes. For our next story, uh, we spoke about Jean Vanier when he died on this show. That was last year. Uh, Now, this past weekend, L'Arche, the organization for disabled and non-disabled people to live together in community that Jean Vanier founded, has released an internal report that detailed credible allegations of sexual abuse against Jean Vanier by six non-disabled women. Uh, This report says that he initiated sex in the context of spiritual direction and that he offered spiritual or mystical explanations to Justify those behaviors, which echoes uh, the explanations of sexual abuse that were perpetrated by his spiritual mentor, Father Thomas Philippe. Um, the new report also shows that Vanier lied about how much he had known about accusations against Father Philippe. Um, this led to an outcry, uh, a, a big expression of disappointment around the world from people who had widely revered. Jean Vanier is a living saint when he was alive. Um, I had certainly said that in several of my pieces on him before. Uh, so, Jerry, uh, you know, I, I was really disappointed by this. I wrote a piece for America about trying to reconcile all the good he did with this evil that we've now found out about. But you had a, a slightly more hopeful take on it, um, which was about how much the church has, has changed in terms of dealing with things like this.
1: Well, the first thing I'd say, Colleen, I remember almost seven years ago now when Francis was elected Pope. And the first thing he said after his election, when they came to say, do you accept your election? He he began, I am a sinner. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the cardinals kind of shook their heads a bit. But he, he, he was making a point. We're all sinners. And that the Church is a Church of saints and sinners, and sinners who have become saints. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's the first point. The second point I'd make is that I think the Church has come a long way in these years. In the past, if you had somebody like Jean Vanier, who many people thought the cause of his beatification should have started, the tendency in the past would have been to cover up right, and not put into the public the other side of the person. Here you have the information coming not from outside the church, but from inside the very organization in the church that he set up, the Ash.
0: Right, the people who have the biggest interest, or would have had the biggest interest in covering it up, but they didn't. Yeah,
1: and just as happened in New York with the former Cardinal McCarrick, it wasn't the outside, the secular press or the media or some uh, uh, journalists who dug out the story. It was the Church, the Catholic Church, which brought into the public arena the m- misdeeds of this man. And so you've seen, and I don't think people have understood or realized sufficiently yet, There is this turning of the page within the church, and the church is moving into an area of an era of transparency. Not yet there, but these are very strong signals. The McCarrie case, the Jean Vanier case, and I suspect there will be others, where the church comes out and says, you know, this is what we are. We, We don't pretend to be saints.
0: Yeah, Jerry. you know, I appreciate the chance to get to talk to you about this and to get your perspective. You're right. It's... It's changed a lot and it's a sign of real progress that, you know, the church is able to come out with these uh, revelations about its own people and about what's actually going on inside of its institutions. And it's also an empowering moment for victims and survivors where they feel they can come forward. So all these are good signs, you know, uh, even if they cause some disappointment as we realize, you know, maybe that the people we looked up to weren't what we thought they were. Um, if our readers, our listeners want to read uh, my piece and our full reporting on this report from Larsh, they can find that at americamagazine.org, and I'll link to them in the show notes. Um, to wrap up our show, we also have a quick update on uh, Rutilio Grande. Uh, his death has been recognized by Pope Francis as a martyrdom. Uh, Jerry, can you, can you explain what that means in terms of his canonization cause?
1: Well, I think it's very significant that uh, this Jesuit priest who was working in, in, in El Salvador, that he, he was really working with the poorest of the poor and defending the defenseless, and uh, he he was shot along with a catechist a uh, 71 uh, year old man and a young young 16 year old boy i think what we're seeing here is the recognition that working for justice is part of the gospel and when they kill you for working for justice you're killed for preaching the gospel because the decree that was issued, said that Rutilio Grande and his two companions were killed out of hate of the gospel.
0: Wow, because it would be easy uh, to see their death as as politically motivated, right?
1: Yes, and in the past, their beatification would not have happened, their causes would not have gone forward under previous pontificates. I, I think what is important to see here is that those who worked for justice and for the poor and the defences in Latin America at one stage in the not-so-distant past of the history of the Church in the second half of the 20th century, were labeled as Marxists. R- remember a person like Bishop Helder Camera, mm-hmm. whose cause for beatification now has come to Rome, was called the communist bishop. Even Francis today is called by some... Communist, Right, we've talked about that before. Yeah, but there is a growing understanding ever since the Second Vatican Council that this is not true, that these are true followers of Christ, and this is what R- Rutilio Grande was. And very interesting that his death was what brought about a complete transformation of Archbishop Romero. Because originally Romero wasn't very happy with the direction he was going. And then suddenly when he was shot with his two companions and Romero stood there looking at the bodies and then celebrating Mass with the three corpses in front of the altar, he came to realize this is what Christ is about. It changed his own life. And two, three years later, this was 1977, 1980, I think, I've got my uh, dates right. Romero went the same way,
0: so Grande's death being recognized as a martyrdom means that he doesn't have to have a miracle attributed to him in order to be beatified, um though Pope Francis has said that Romero's conversion was Grande's first miracle. All right, Jerry. Uh, so you know, we've talked about some challenging things this week. We've talked a lot about uh, the different intersections of politics and religion and the church, um, and also, you know, how that how that intersects with uh, with sainthood and with uh, you know maybe becoming disappointed in in people too. I, I we've covered a lot and I really appreciate the chance to get to talk with you about all of it. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Colleen. It's, a, it's a, these are good discussions because I, I think. Many people uh, have contradictory thoughts in their head and try to, uh, how do you make sense of all this?
0: Absolutely. Hopefully uh, hopefully we can help just a little bit while we try to make sense of it too. All right, Jerry. I'll talk to you next week.
1: Look forward to that, Colleen, and uh, happy listening to our audience.
0: All right, bye. Inside the Vatican is produced by America Media at our William J. Lowshirt studio in New York City. This week's episode was produced by Tucker Redding. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Noah Levinson. Our audio engineer is Isabel Seneschel. Our studio manager is J.R. Cronheim. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at americamag. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next week.